You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. Happy post-Thanksgiving and uh, happy Advent as we move into the Advent season, and uh, that means we're beginning a new sermon series, and it's entitled, um, A Weary World Rejoices, A Weary World Rejoices. So for the next several weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, we will look at why we celebrate Christmas and what this means for you, for me, and for the entire world. So my hope and prayer is that this sermon series will cause you to do several things, right? Several things will happen. One, we would have greater gratitude for Jesus, right? We're more thankful for all, all that God has done in Christ. Number two, for you to have a greater appreciation about, about why we celebrate Christmas, right? <laughs> May this be kind of like the moment in the week where we remove ourselves from the commercialism that exists every December and focus in on why we celebrate Number three, for you to experience meaningful worship with Christ and with each other as we talk about the birth of our Savior. Hopefully, this will be the most unsecularized sermon series throughout the Des Moines Metro. And I mean that. <laughs> the most uncommercialized, the most unsecularized sermon series throughout the Des Moines Metro and the most worshipful sermon series throughout the Des Moines Metro as we focus in on our Savior, and why He was born a baby. All that said, all that with a kind of a brief intro to our sermon series, just I'll transition into today's message. Um, in recent years, I've heard the statement from political pundits that they are on the the right side of history. I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard it plenty. I'm and my in my uh, private life, I'm kind of a political junkie. <laughs> um, I get that from my my pops, and I've heard that a lot. Heard from pundits, um, heard it from uh, political candidates from both parties. Doesn't matter. Heck, if you just wait for the next political debate, you will hear this statement. What I believe is on the right side of history. What is assumed is that if a person says they are on the right side of history, then the opposite view is on the wrong side of history. I'm going to be honest, I've never thought much of this kind of rhetoric or its flawed logic. It's shallow, and when it's uttered by a politician or pundit, both sides of the aisle, uh, they rarely explain what they mean. You know, just a talking point. I'm on the right side of history. You're not. Whatever. From an article in The Atlantic, David Graham explains, the problem with this kind of thinking is that it imputes an agency to history that doesn't exist. Worse, it assumes that progress is unidirectional. It's going in one direction, one direction only. But history is not a moral force in and of itself, and it has no set course. That's his pushback against those kind of claims. Point being, the phrase is unhelpful because history, when people make these statements, it hasn't been written. 
It's only when events become history, then can we see who is or is not on the right side of history. Further, if the goal is to be on the, quote, right side of history, then at some point your values and principles will be betrayed. So, with all that said, I did ask the question to myself, is there an acceptable context to use the phrase or phrases, the right side of history or the wrong side of history? Like, if I'm so put off by that rhetoric and that statement or statements, is there an acceptable context where that is true? Like, I've been thinking about this for years, <laughs> so I finally get to use it in a sermon. And I've been thinking about it, like, is there an acceptable context? Who or what is knowledgeable and has the foresight and is trustworthy enough and has the integrity to make such a claim? In my musings, there is only one person who can make such claims. That person is God. And I do think my claim is substantiated. So for the remainder of our time, I'm going to show you why God has validated himself as the sole source to make claims about history. And I want to show you what it means for you to be on the right or wrong side. I'm taking this secular phrase to show what God has to do with history. At the end of our passage, the prophet Isaiah makes a stunning statement. Did you catch it? He wrote this between the 7th and 8th century uh, B.C., so well before Christ was born. Stunning statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We read in this one verse an assurance of what will happen in history because of God's sovereign will. And what God has done impacts your present reality and your future. Before looking at the, um, this in verse 7, I want you to see what it means for the Lord to be zealous. I mean, what, what is up with God being zealous in Isaiah 9 in particular? The word zealous, it gets used, you'll see it in the New and Old Testament. Um, so what does it mean here? The idea that the Lord is zealous is like a, a person's face becoming red because they're like full of emotion. You ever been there? That's how the Lord is described in verse 7. God is full of emotion for his people. In the New Testament, God's people are often referred to as, as children. So let me try to illustrate my point. Um, recently, I, I took a trip with, with my kiddos, and it was their first airplane ride. They were stoked. Like, we got up. Our plane left at 5 a.m. You know, we're 40 minutes from the airport. Didn't think that one through very well. Got the kids up early, drove there. They were wired. Sharice was staying back, which meant I had the sole responsibility to keep my, keep my eye on the kids as we traversed through various airports. We had layovers, right? And there was a moment when myself and the kids were making our way to board a plane. It was just like a herd of animals. Like, you ever, if you've ever been there, you know, it's like, 
You know you need to wait, but everyone's like standing up waiting to get to that door. And all of a sudden, there were several people between myself and Chloe. Now, if you're a parent and you've been in a context where there's a ton of people around, and like you aren't by your kids, like there's a little bit of panic that comes in. When I realized she was not at my side, I said politely, but urgently, I asked the people between us, could you let my daughter through? And then someone quipped, are you sure you want to take her with you? Some random guy trying to be funny. It wasn't a funny matter to me. I could not see my own face, but in that moment, I looked at the man and said to his face, I will take out whoever to ensure my child is restored to my side. And I mean, like, I was kind of trying to joke with them, but reality, I wasn't. That person quickly received the hint and my daughter was restored to my side. So what compelled me to speak as I did? I don't know if I, if I was right or wrong to speak that way. I'll let you decide. But what compelled me to speak as I did? Zeal for my child. Zeal that emerges from, I think in God's case, a righteous emotion that aims to make sure this child is safe, and I wanted that for my kiddo. I tell my kids, I will do everything in my power to protect you, so I will do everything in my power to protect them. The Lord has made similar promises to his children, and his zeal is an expression of love and care toward his children. Now, let's look closely at why the Lord Jesus is zealous and what did he do in light of his zeal, right? So if that's what's going on, if he's zealous, he's making proclamations, the zeal of the Lord will do this, why? What's going on here? What is the this in verse 7? In order to find the answer, we need to know the greater context of the book of Isaiah. Consider this kind of the, the backstory to the main passage we're looking at today. Let's look at the greater context, and as I continue to preach, we'll zero closer and closer in on our primary passage. Here's a bit of biblical theology to help you get your mind around what God's Word says in Isaiah. Um, God made a promise to Israel through Abraham. So I'm kind of backing up actually out of Isaiah Going back to Genesis. It says this in Genesis. And I will make for you a great nation. God talking to Abraham. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You hear what God's saying he's going to do? I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you think to yourself, what does Genesis have to do with Isaiah? And what does Genesis have to do with the birth of the Savior? Buckle in. We're going to get there. God is going to make his people into a great nation so that the world can be blessed. Now as we move, just say, go to the next book, go to Exodus, Exodus 19 in particular. God makes a covenant with his people through Moses. 
He gives them Ten Commandments, and he wants Israel to obey his commandments to show the world that his people are set apart. These commandments also guard God's people from worshiping idols and other alleged gods. God continues to demonstrate his faithfulness to his promise in 2 Samuel 7. I'm just highlighting a few verses for you. The word of the Lord came to David via the prophet Nathan. And we read how God is going to establish an eternal kingdom through David. So that's 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14. So the promise that God made with Abraham continues to make its way through history. As we continue to see, we see God's faithfulness at work. But there was a problem. The people God called out were not faithful. They did not trust. The book of Isaiah, so now kind of fast-forwarding. There's a little bit of backstory. There's a little more backstory now focusing on Isaiah. The book of Isaiah tells us of a spark of hope in the midst of a weary world and a weary people. Frankly, we see God's faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness. Nonetheless, the Lord is zealous for his people, but he is also heartbroken because many will not trust him. The book of Isaiah is about the grace of God through Jesus Christ and the triumph of God's grace as he he shows a weary world the way to hope. If you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, let me just give you the quick cliff notes here. God raises up Isaiah, the book he's, it's named after, to be this kind of like prophetic voice. God's basically like, hey, I, I need you to speak to these people because they're going off the rails. They're disobedient. You kind of see that as we go through Isaiah 1, chapter 1 through chapter 6. So God's people drifted from trusting him. They had allowed the weariness of the world to crush them. And eventually the people turned to idolatry. Instead of worshiping the creator, people were worshiping the creation. Instead of trusting in God's promises, I think Abraham, Moses, David in 2 Samuel 7, instead of trusting in God's promises, they trusted in themselves. Or they trusted in something other than God. I'm just trying to get my mind around what this could, how I can use a contemporary example. Uh, this might divide the room a little bit. I'm going to go for it. It would be kind of like you working for Starbucks. So you got Starbucks right down in Hickman. And then receiving, you know, receiving all the benefits that Starbucks has to offer. And then one day you just kind of decide, hey, hey, Caribou's right across the street. I'm going to go, I'm going to go over there. You turned your back on Starbucks, and perhaps your intentions are so perverse that even though you walked away from Starbucks and went to Caribou, you still expected all the benefits you received from Starbucks. So here you have idolatry and hypocrisy. Now, if you're not a coffee connoisseur, well, I'm not a connoisseur, but if you don't like coffee like me, and you're just like a straight Folgers guy, that might be meaningless to you. 
Isaiah was preaching judgment on Israel because they had walked away from God. They ceased to believe in the promises of God. But God re-ups, re-ups on the promises he made with Abraham and continues to say, I will provide an everlasting king to you. It's this promise of God and the message of hope which provide the context of Isaiah's message of constant judgment. Over again, Isaiah calls out Israel for their idolatry. He was frustrated with their, their memory lapses, like they don't remember what God had done for them. Time and time again, God had shown himself to be faithful, and time and time again, Israel had shown itself to be unfaithful. Faithful. But God's plan will not be detoured. God can't ignore their sin, but he does want to show a better way. Here's the passage of hope, only two chapters before the passage we're currently considering. Hear then, O house of David. It is, is it too little for you to weary men? That you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Listen, I know, I know you guys are weary. I get that. But because I'm faithful, I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And as we sang earlier, and as Ryan said, Emmanuel means God with us. There's not another book in the Old Testament that is so clear about the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, um, just kind of parenthetical statement, between now and December 24th, I'm just going to be reading through Isaiah because of how much it tells us about Christmas and about God, all that God has done in Christ. Here's one more example of God's righteous judgment and hope in Isaiah. In Isaiah 10, Isaiah uses the metaphor of trees and branches that need to be cut down to describe the fury of the Lord. God is going to cut off branches and cut trees to create stumps. He's effectively clearing the wicked, but a remnant shall remain. And then in the next chapter, Isaiah, we read, There shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse. If you don't know your your history... Jesse was the father of David, so from this line, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So already, in only 11 chapters in Isaiah, God is proving himself to be faithful and providing hope in the midst of a weary land and a weary people. And in this chapter, chapter 11, I'm referring to, goes on to describe the one who comes forth from this root of Jesse. I'm bumping around a little bit. Chapter 8 also tells us about the doom and gloom because of Israel's disobedience. But when you turn the page to chapter 9, which is what we're looking at right now, we do read of something revolutionary. The first word in Isaiah 9 is best translated as nevertheless. 
So in spite of all the justice that I need to perform, in spite of your sinfulness, in spite of your unfaithfulness, nevertheless. So even though the judgment of God is clear, there has and always will be a people who find hope in their God. Because God will provide for His people. He will provide. There has always been a people who turn to God when they are weary. Even though the judgment of God is going to be executed then and now, there's hope. There's always hope. And that word nevertheless is so helpful as we look at Isaiah 9. At the beginning of verse 2 of chapter 9, we see a transition from from narrative, so kind of reading a story, to poetry. Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7, is a beautiful poem of hope for a weary people. So I simply ask you the question, are you weary? It was hard just to get here this morning. It was a hard week. Let these verses minister to you this morning. It's a message we need to hear And it's the perfect passage to impress upon our hearts as we begin to celebrate the Advent season. Here's verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, he's up in the ante there, on them has light shone. Notice Isaiah acknowledges the darkness the people of God can walk in, right? He's brutally honest. There are people who walk in darkness because they cultivate darkness. I think that's true. And there are people who are surrounded by darkness but long for someone greater. I think the honesty of the Bible, and this verse in particular, is refreshing. God's people are never assured of an easy life. Because of sin, the world is broken. We are tempted to experience loneliness and despair. Fear fear of the world can grip our hearts. For some of you, the word Darkness simply means depression, and I get that. That's hard. Yes, this world is broken, and we're all a part of it. But there is light. There's light. So out out where I live, just north of, of Adel, there's very little light pollution. And if it's a cloudy day, and there's no moon... It can be really dark, Um, especially if you kind of just walk two minutes away from the one light that exists, you know, kind of by our house. But what happens if you're standing in the middle of the yard, unable to see right in front of your face, and you take a match, light it, just one? That one match can illuminate more than we initially would have imagined. A small spark can show the way forward. Light will overcome the darkness. For a moment, I want, I want to show you the thread that connects walking in, in darkness with, um, with sin. Because I think that's a point that Isaiah is saying. You've been walking in darkness, and why are you walking in darkness? It's more than just a metaphor. This is fundamental for how you understand yourself and the world around you. It's fundamental to understand so that you know where to find hope. I believe all people 
are born in sin and are therefore sinful. The opposite of this idea would be, say, would, would be to say, to some degree, people are born good, right? Uh, let, me, let me explain myself with the story and then show you why it matters when we read Isaiah 9. So I don't, I don't know about you, but around the powers Thanksgiving table, uh, politics and religion are the topics of choice. Some people avoid it. The powers family, we, we dive right in. Um, these two topics and, and the Vikings, of course. I don't, I don't recall how we meandered onto this topic, but the nature of how a person is born kind of came up. I think my, my wife was listening in from the kitchen being like, you going there? Yeah, I got there. I don't know how, but we got there. So one person in my extended family said he believes that all people are born good. I politely protested with Isaiah 9 in mind. I said, if you believe people are born good, then it's possible to find all your hope in this world or in other people or in yourself. If that's a possibility, I could find hope in some of you or what this world has to offer. However, if all people are born in sin, we call this the doctrine of total depravity, then we're forced to find our hope in someone outside ourselves, outside other people, and outside this broken world. Our sin helps us to see our great need for someone greater. Our sin shows us that we need to find the place of hope. Acknowledging our utter depravity helps us to see the greatness and depths of God's grace toward us. Darkness exists because of sin. And acknowledging sin helps us to understand the profundity of the light which also exists. If a person is living in darkness and living in sin, there is no hope apart from, is what we read in this verse, apart from the light. Of course, Jesus made several statements about light in the New Testament. Here's one uh, from the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Again, do you hear that assurance? Whoever follows me will not. He's making no room for exception. Will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the flicker of light in the midst of your darkness. He is also the sun in the sky that illuminates everything. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, here, here is the light that guides you, keeps you, and gives you hope. And as we saw last week, when you are united to Christ, the light of Christ is in you, and you share that with others. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 regarding light. You, Christian, you, Christian, right here, you are the light of the world. Do you see how this is all connecting? Isaiah, we got John talking about Jesus saying he's the light. And now we're talking about you, Christian. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, why do you put it on a stand and not in a basket? Because it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christian, you are God's ambassador to people who are living in darkness. It is with you where a worry, weary world can see the triumph of grace in Christ. 
what an unbelievable privilege. Notice what results from the light breaking into the darkness. Joy. It's in verse 3. When the light breaks in, what's the response? Joy. You have multiplied the nation, it says. You have increased its joy. The gospel is going forth, and so joy is increasing. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. While we live on this weary earth, we can have joy. The mention of harvest in verse 3 indicates all that God provides for his people. You're all, we're all here in Iowa. We all, well, we've all seen combines bringing in the harvest. It's like that combine's coming to, to your front door. It's provision. It's God's way of saying, I will provide. The mention of divided spoil, or your, your translation may say plunder, it's God's way of saying, I have secured the victory. So following God means provision and victory. You, you can't see this in your English translation, but this passage was written, this is really helpful, was written with the future in mind. You, know, you could read something and it's, present tense, um, ongoing circumstances, ongoing events. But that's actually not what's written here. It would be like me saying to you in the present, you will eat lunch after church, and then you go out and eat lunch after church. There is a future assurance spoken in the present. So it is here with Isaiah 9. He speaks to a weary people about a future hope that they can have assurance in. You can have hope that the light will overcome the darkness. Therefore, you can have joy. And this God is going to ensure that he provides for you. And guess what? At the end of the day, there is victory. You might not always feel it. But the promise will prevail. Let me go back to my opening statement for a moment. It's clear that God has spoken. It's clear that God is faithful to his promises. And so the question is, are you on the right side of history that has already taken place? Do you see how the light has and continues to overcome the darkness? To further explain who is the light, and the reason why God's people can have hope and joy because of the light. We read the word, this is for your English translation, the word for, F-O-R, and it's used in verses 4, 5, and 6. Let me show you how Isaiah supports his opening statement in these three verses. Here's verse 4. For, so we get the light breaking into darkness, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So how does a weary person see hope in verse 4? The reference to the day of Midian recalls the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. That's what's going on here. 
Isaiah's being like, do you remember this event? In Judges 6 to 8. Long story short, Gideon was an unlikely leader to lead the charge against the Midianites. Basically, there were a lot of people versus God's people. But God was on Gideon's side. God had taken the strong Midian army and reduced it from 32,000 to 300. Then, and this will seem odd, Gideon's army began to blow trumpets, break jars, hold up torches in the middle of the night, which caused the remaining um, army to go crazy. And they started, like, killing themselves and each other. Isaiah looks at this event and sees Gideon as, as a liberator of God's people. But he recalls this event to point to a greater liberator. liberator. And here is the lesson. And as Ray Ortland says, true liberation comes from beyond ourself. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God liberates weary people by revealing to their heart the light. The second four, F-O-R, carries a similar theme. Here it is. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, see the imagery here, will be burned as fuel for the fire. God not only will liberate the weary, but he will win the ultimate battle for the weary. Clearly the language of verses 4 and 5 provide like vivid imagery battle. The Lord is the one at work. Now think about what this means for you. You know that the remedy to your weariness cannot come from what the world offers. And I know that your weariness cannot be overcome by you. Although we try really hard to try to win the battle against weariness on your own, you will lose again and again and again. But what if you trust in God to liberate your soul and win the battle? What if you do that? What if you can trust in what God has promised? The promises he has fulfilled and what God continues to prove. What if you lean into that? We read in verse 6, God doesn't liberate in the usual way. Which is really interesting. We just had these, you know, these vivid battle imageries, right? And one would expect much of the same. God's going to liberate us through, through winning the battle. But that's not what we see now. God gives hope and rest for the weary in a most unexpected way. Here's the third four, F-O-R. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Hope for the weary has come through a child. So we just want to back up for a moment. If we were in the, you know, if I was in the audience and Isaiah was preaching, how, how would this land on me? How would this land on you, right? Like they understood God winning the battle for them. And now we got this transition, transition to a child? 
hope for the weary has come through a baby? It's not just the child of the Father, Father God. He's the child of the promise, Abraham. He's the greatest gift. Though this child, through this child, all the promises find their fulfillment. I'm thinking Matthew 5, verse 17. It is because of this child where the wrongs of the world are made right. In him, perfect justice and love exist. He is the child who became a man, a man on a mission to redeem a lost and weary people. He is hope for our past and from our past, hope in our present, and hope for our future. He has written history, and future history will happen because of his sovereign hand. His sovereign hand has already written it. Jesus was born into the world to show the faithfulness of God and provide for you a way to be reconciled to a holy God. This pure and innocent child took on our impurity and sin upon his shoulders at the cross and to prove death had no claim on his life, he rose from death. It's quite astonishing. And marvelous that God would provide hope in this way. And what else does Isaiah 9 tell us about this child? The government shall be upon his shoulders. This child has the authority to raise up governments and then take them down. Consider that truth when you're pondering or complaining about politics, right? Who's really in charge here? He's a wonderful counselor. When you are weary, you can approach him with all your burdens, your suffering, your anxiety. There's nothing that you can't bring to him. That he doesn't want to meet you and help you with. He's a mighty God, meaning your God is a warrior working on your behalf. And this mighty warrior wants you to be steadfast in hope because one day he will come back to wage war against sin, against oppression, and against the deceitfulness of the world. He is compared to an everlasting father. He is a God who is tender and comforts his people. He is a God who deeply loves his people. He is the Prince of Peace. He reconciles us to himself even while we were still enemies with him. As a result, in the midst of a world of unrest, the son to be born meets his people with a peace that settles the weary heart. It's a peace that causes us to trust. But this passage isn't just about what God has done by sending his son. It's also about what the Son will continue to do. In verse 7, it says, There will be no end to the peace He has to offer you in the world. No end to that peace. This Davidic throne that was promised has been taken up and continues through this Son, and it's an everlasting kingdom. This king will uphold justice and righteousness now and forever. 
which means just as he came into the world as a baby to save the world, he will come back again to fully and finally redeem all things to himself. He will come back to restore everything that is broken because of sin. Ray Ortland says in his commentary on Isaiah, and if you like reading commentaries, that is a, a commentary you can read alongside reading the book of Isaiah, and it is a worshipful experience. He says this, This child is the king to end all kings, saving us from our failure, lifting us into his own justice and righteousness. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord, our crucified, risen, reigning, and coming Savior. And he will not come back to tweak this problem and that. He will return with a massive correction to all systematic evil forever. Systemic, excuse me, evil forever. A weary world rejoices because of the birth of the Son of God. The Son of God, Jesus, has come to offer hope to any who will receive him. Why has all this happened? And why the future so sure for God's people? So sure? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So I ask you one more time, what side of history are you on? Let's pray.